0: doctrine and what powerful thoughts we've been challenged with and so beautifully done open your bibles to ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 20 ephesians chapter 6 verses 10 through 20 i'm reading from the new american standard version in verse 10 the word of god says this finally be strong in the lord and in the strength of his might "...put on the full armor of God, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers, and against the world's forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything to stand firm." Stand firm, then, having girded your loins with truth, and put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, of Satan. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me, Paul asking for himself, and the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. The fight for your life. The fight for your life. The date was November 2nd, 1957. It was a college football game in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and at that time, Texas A&M was undefeated and ranked number one in the nation, and they were playing the Arkansas Razorbacks, who were ranked number 11 in the nation at that time. Texas A&M had a very famous football player on their team that year, 1957 Heisman Trophy winner John David Crow, But late in the game, Texas A&M was ahead of Arkansas 7-6, and there were about two minutes left, and Texas A&M had the ball way down on Arkansas's end of the field. And you may not know it, but at that time, Texas A&M was coached by the legendary football coach Paul Bear Bryant. He was the head coach at Texas A&M a at that time well coach bryant sent in a substitute to the quarterback with a message and the quarterback for texas a and at that time was a man named roddy osborne and coach bryant sent in a substitute with a message to him this is back before the headsets and their helmets he said whatever you do coach bryant says do not throw the ball run the ball stay in bounds run out the clock So according to Roddy uh, Osborne's son, what happened on the next play has become legendary. After the instructions came from Coach Bryant only to run the ball and not to throw the ball, to run out the clock, on the next play, Roddy Osborne took the snap And that Texas A&M quarterback rolled out to his right. And by his own words, he said, I was going to run the ball up in the field and run off some clock, but I looked in the end zone and there was one of my players wide open in the end zone. And he, could, he, he remembered the instructions from Coach Bryant, but something overcame him. He saw that player wide open in the end zone. He said, I threw the ball. And so he, instead of running the clock out, Roddy Osborne threw the ball and it was intercepted by a player for Arkansas. And the guy's name was Donnie Horton. Now, Donnie Horton was famous for being fast. Roddy Osborne was famous for being slow, and he just thrown an interception when Coach Bryant said, run the ball. And Donnie Horton starts running up the field, and he's moving. He's picking them up and putting them down. And Roddy Osborne is famous for being slow, but he starts chasing Donnie Horton. And up to everyone's amazement, ran him down and tackled him at the 27-yard line. And John David Crowe actually intercepted the ball late in the game to seal the win for Texas A&M. Well, after the game, they were interviewing Coach Bryant. And they asked Coach Bryant, they said, Coach Bryant, you know, Roddy Osborne's not that fast and Donnie Horton's known for being fast. And we were really amazed that Roddy Osborne ran down Donnie Horton and tackled him. And Coach Bryant with his bear-like voice, Bear Bryant said, well, Donnie Horton was running for a touchdown. Roddy Osborne was running for his life. If you know Coach Bryant, there's a lot of truth to that, running for his life. You are in a fight for your life. You are running for your life. There is a war at at going on all around you. There, we are at war, whether you realize it or not. Much like Roddy Osborne, you and I are in a race and a fight for our own life. Unlike a football game, our opponent and enemy is unseen, but he is equally real satan himself. Ephesians 6:10 through 20 gives us a detailed description of spiritual warfare and gives us instructions on how we can achieve victory. Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 20 explains the reality of spiritual warfare and it gives us this pathway to victory. And we're going to see four steps to victory in spiritual warfare from this passage. Four truths that anybody at any point in their spiritual life can put into place that can lead us to victory in spiritual warfare. First of all, the first truth is this. You have to prepare for a fight. You have to prepare for a fight. Would you look with me at verse 10? It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. And I want to point out a word to you in verse 12. Notice what it says For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against powers. A couple of things. This being strong in the Lord, the strength of his might. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God. Everything in these verses, verses 10 through 20, is warfare language. We are at war. So you have to prepare for a fight. But look at that word struggle in verse 12. Circle that word struggle. That same word is used outside of the Bible and other contexts in ancient Greek literature to describe a wrestling match. And so if some of you guys were ever in the military and you ever were trained in combatives, hand-to-hand combative training. It's that sort of language. So the the warfare language that it's using in verse 12 when it says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's the language of very intimate, personal combat. This is hand-on-hand, fist-on-fist, face to face you can feel the breath of your opponent it is intense language so if you're going to have victory in spiritual warfare the first thing is you have to prepare for a fight you have to realize the reality of spiritual warfare and as we prepare for this fight we have to acknowledge that our strength is inadequate our strength is inadequate look at verse 10 again what does it say Finally, brothers, be strong in your own strength and in the strength of all the power you have within you. That's not what it says. It says, be strong in who? In the, in the Lord, in the strength of whose might? His might. We don't, our, our strength is inadequate for this battle. We do not have enough power to win the victory. Notice the context again. In Ephesians chapter 4 through Ephesians chapter 5 Paul has been giving us ethical instruction. He's been talking about all sorts of different areas of Christian ethics including marriage, which we looked at last week. And in the middle of, as soon as he finishes discussing our ethical walk as a Christian the first thing he does is discuss spiritual warfare. If you're going to live for Jesus, if you're going to have a life of character, ethics, and integrity that looks like a Christian life should look. You are in spiritual warfare and you and I are inadequate in ourselves to win this this battle. Some of you this morning may not be Christians. You've not decided to become a Christ follower. And one objection you have is that you are aware of what a Christian life looks like. A life of forgiveness, a life of peace, of showing considerate and kindness to others. uh, A life of moral purity. And you see those things and in your mind what you're saying is there's no way i can do that well actually you're right there is no way you can live the christian life in the flesh the only way anyone can live the christian life is through the new birth when god takes up residence within us and we have the holy spirit and so we are inadequate in our own strength it can only be done through the strength of the lord if we're going to live a life of ethics and integrity and win in spiritual warfare we must in fact realize our own strength is inadequate. Australian New Testament scholar scholar that's a word new word I invented. Australian New Testament scholar Peter T O'Brien makes a statement about this passage that I like. He said quote the moral issues with which Paul deals are not simply matters of personal preference as many within our contemporary and postmodern world contend. On the contrary, they are essential elements of a larger struggle between the forces of good and evil. You have to be ready for a fight. Uh, this week in Missouri, where I live at, the governor of Missouri resigned in shame and scandal on friday eric gritens now if you don't know much about governor Greitens, let me tell you a few things he was a rhodes scholar before he went to oxford he was a graduate of duke one of the greatest academic institutions in our nation he earned a phd from oxford he was a white house fellow which is a big deal he was a Navy SEAL and a decorated is a Navy SEAL and decorated combat veteran. Uh, listen for those of us who are men, for just a second, men. If I can talk to you, every one of us. That's exactly the type of resume we like to tell our friends about, right? I have a PhD from Oxford, and oh yes, I was a Navy SEAL. That's that's what we'd like to tell all our friends. And yet all of that academic excellence, all of the unimaginable uh, suffering that goes on in basic underwater demolition and uh, seal school out there at Coronado, all the um, unimaginable stress that he was able to put his body through to become a Navy SEAL, none of that gave him victory over his own spirit and his own character. We are inadequate in our own strength. We don't have enough physical strength. We don't have enough moral and intellectual strength to win this battle. Verse 10, be strong in who? Be strong in the, we're inadequate in our own strength. But then the good news is this, that God's power is invincible. Notice again, verse 10, be strong in the Lord. The verb syntax and the, the grammar here is really quite interesting. I actually think it's better, uh, better translated this way. Listen carefully. Not just be strong, but be strengthened. The verb is a passive. The idea is that a power is invading us from the outside and, and we are being strengthened. The the grammar and the verb tense drives home the idea that the power for victory doesn't come from the believer himself or herself but the power for victory comes from an external source it comes from God himself in the lord that's our strength in the lord finally be strong in the lord and then notice this next phrase in verse 10 in the strength of his might Spiritual warfare requires supernatural power. And that little phrase, in the strength of his might, do you see it there in verse 10? In the strength of his might, in his might. That same phrase is used in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 19 through 20 to describe the strength and the might and the power of Jesus Christ at his resurrection. What Paul is talking about is resurrection power. Listen carefully. We are inadequate in our own strength, but the Lord's power is invincible. It's resurrection power. What kind of power does God give the Christian? Be strengthened in his might, in the same power that rose Jesus from the grave. He is the all-time undefeated champion. He has never been defeated. The devil thought he had him. Death thought he had him. But on the third day, he rose victorious over death hell and the grave and listen in spiritual warfare the battle that you're fighting in your life for your family for your home for this city we are inadequate in our own might but God's power is invincible and the same power that rose Jesus from the grave 2,000 years ago is available to us today and we can have the victory it's good news in the gospel of Jesus Christ but you have to prepare for a fight you got to know that you're going into a fight Can you imagine if I, when I was at Fort Hunter Liggett in the summer of 2011 and then at Fort Hood, uh, later in 2011 preparing to go overseas, they spent a lot of time telling us about al-Qaeda in Iraq and Taliban in Afghanistan. Can you imagine if when I'd gotten off the airplane in Kuwait and we landed, if I'd said, you know what? You know what? The army's telling us that there's a Taliban and the army's telling us that there's this Al-Qaeda. I don't believe it. I think that's a story that the army has made up to scare me so I will conform to their rules. You You know what you call someone who denies the existence of the Taliban in Afghanistan? You call them a casualty. Because you've got a real enemy out there that's out to get you, which really leads to our next point. Not only do you have to prepare for a fight, but you need to plan. To know your enemy you need to know all about your enemy in the military there's a phrase situational awareness and you need to have some situational awareness about your enemy first of all he is real would you look with me in verse 11 put on the full armor of god so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil he is real over the last 200 years Liberal theologians have denied the existence of the devil. They have said this was an idea that's meant to personify evil. There really is no fallen angel called Satan. This is just a literary device used to personify evil to help you kind of get your mind around the idea that evil is really bad. Some have said that the idea of a Satan and demons was borrowed from Babylonian Zoroasterism 500 years before the time of Christ. In the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis said something that has become very famous. He said, quote, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, humans, can fall about the devils or the devil. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So there's two extremes you can have about Satan. Some people see a demon behind every rock. Um, You've maybe met friends like this, and they're fighting whatever struggle they're having in life. And I've known people that said they felt like they need to find the name of the demon they're fighting in order to overcome whatever battle they're in. And so I don't know exactly how that would work if you were on a a weight loss plan of some sort sort but you know if if that was true hypothetically one might say you know foul demon of obesity name thyself Wendy and Ronald's in here too right you know but um uh, (laughs) some people see a demon behind every rock that is excessive and unhealthy on one extreme but the other extreme is people deny the existence of the devil that's another unhealthy extreme what you want is a real accurate biblical apprehension of your enemy and so the first thing you need to know is he is real there really is a devil he's real he's out to get you and not only is he real he is attractive the bible never really gives us a physical description of satan our image of a red person with horns and a tail and a pitchfork was developed in medieval times it doesn't come from the bible we don't know what Satan looks like, but what we do know is that he is attractive. Here's a verse. Write this down. 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Would you write it down? Here's what it says. Paul says... No wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He looks good. He's attractive. There is a beauty to Satan. He radiates beauty. He appeals to the senses as attractive. And not only is he attractive, he makes sin look attractive. He wants you to uh, look at the most beautiful people in Hollywood who flaunt all moral restraint and who are, plastered across the pages of People magazine. Uh, Satan is erudite. He presents his lies as the height of intellectual sophistication. Satan is popular. He presents the the worldview he's selling as the consensus of modernity and you don't want to be left behind on some antiquated worldview. It made me think of really something from botany. Some of the most amazing plants in the world are called pitcher plants pitcher plants they are a carnivorous plant much like a venus flytrap. these are beautiful they're jug shaped they have a beautiful color and a beautiful body and they're they're nice and leafy and give off enzymes and aromas that uh, attract different bugs sometimes even small lizards but that pitcher plant once the the insect gets down inside that picture they're actually enzymes in the plant that begin to dissolve the little insect isn't that amazing But think about that. The plant looks so beautiful and it has all the right aroma and right smell and the the insect is drawn to it because it looks so appealing. That is exactly how Satan works. He is attractive. Listen, if Satan showed up today in all his ugly, hideous vileness and we could see him for as he truly is, all of us would go permanently attach ourselves to Jesus in an instant. But he doesn't do that. He shows up as an angel of light. He's slick. He's articulate. He has a suave and a debonair approach to things. He appeals to the intellect. He appeals to the mind, to the emotions. He he battles us at so many levels, which really leads to the third thing we need to know about Satan. Not only is he real, not only is he attractive, he uses multiple schemes. Look with me at verse 11, would you? Put on the full armor of God. So that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. The Greek word is methodos. It's where we get our word method from. It refers to this. This word schemes, it means a procedure, a process, a method. It can be translated as a strategy or a scheme. Listen, Satan has a detailed plan to take you and your family down. It's not haphazard. It's not random. He has a a plan, but notice that the word is in the plural, the schemes. He works at multiple different levels. He works uh, through the thinking. He operates physically. He'll attack your body. He operates psychologically. He'll attack your mind. He operates intellectually. He'll attack your will. He operates emotionally. He'll try to get you to feel things. He operates relationally. And he, at so many different levels. But at all these multiple schemes that he uses, there's one common element. Write this verse down, would you? John 8, 44. Here's what Jesus said about Satan. He is a liar and the father of lies. That's how he works. Whatever scheme he's using on you and your family, I can guarantee you there are lies underneath it. He will lie to you about your nature. He'll try to tell you that you're basically good, you're not really bad, and you don't have a sin nature. He will lie to you about sin. He'll tell you everyone does it, it's not that bad. He will lie to you about Jesus. He will tell you things like you can't trust the Bible, and Jesus isn't the only way, and there's lots of ways to God. He will lie to you through the voice of other people. There will be people that try to speak into your life, and Satan uses them to give you a lie. He will lie to you about the earth urgency of salvation. The biggest lie of Satan is this when it comes to salvation. Wait till tomorrow. There's no urgency. You've got so much time. Well, look at you. You're in the prime of youth. Nothing's going to happen. You don't have to throw away these fun years of life living a drab Christian life. You can wait. You can wait. You can put it off to tomorrow. He'll lie to you about the urgency of salvation. He lies. He lies. He lies. You need to know your enemy. So the question is, if we're in a fight that is this desperate and we have an enemy that's that seductive and that powerful, how can we win? That leads to the third point. Not only do we have to plan for a fight and plan to know your, prepare for a fight and plan to know your enemy, but also you have to put on the armor of God. This deserves an entire sermon, but we're going to move through the six pieces of the armor of God very quickly. Notice what it says in verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God. It is the word panoplia. It referred to the full set of armor that a Roman foot soldier would wear into battle. The emphasis is on the full protection. Again, this is the language of war. This is fighting imagery. This is war imagery. When I was in the Army, we had battle rattle that we would wear. And so we had this uh, large vest we would wear, and it was stuffed with four uh, bulletproof plates. We had one large plate in the front, one large plate in the back, A small one here and a small one here. Four plates. Weighed about, for the chaplain, for me, it was about 38 pounds. My soldiers had to carry ammo. It was a lot heavier for them. But you had to go out with your full battle rattle on. And before we would go on the mission, the sergeants, the NCOs, which are the backbone of the army, would check everybody before they got into their equipment, before they got into their trucks. They're making sure you've got all four plates in, that everything is... In place, because there have been tragic stories in the last 20 years of warfare of soldiers who got in a hurry or because it's so hot in the desert. By the way, you spend about a year in the desert in the Middle East, your definition of hot gets changed for the rest of your life, right? In a 94, day, 94 degree day is just pleasant, but uh, it's so hot and it, the, the equipment's so heavy and people are in a hurry that some soldiers said, Well, I'll leave the sappy plate in the back out and I'm gonna go on this mission and lighten my load. And you know what happens? They catch around in the back and they die. Why? They did not have their full armor on. You've got to have every piece of this armor. This is a set of six things. They come together. You need every piece. Let's walk through them and make sure we know what they are. First of all, is what? The belt of, are you, am I at an Episcopalian church this morning? Let me say this again. The belt of what? The belt of truth. Do you notice how he starts with truth? Do you notice this? Remember, Satan's primary tactic is what? He's the father of, and then he says the first thing we have to do is put on the belt of. Do you see the contrast? See that? And what's the truth? Jesus says in John 14, 6, what? I am the way, the what? truth in the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, that we we start with truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of our sin nature, and really what, what we have in mind here is the entire narrative of Scripture, this narrative of creation, fall, redemption, and then finally the return of Christ. That's the true narrative through which life should be seen, and we start there with that belt of truth, and once we get that narrative right, we start to make a lot of sense out of life. But not only do we have the belt of truth, we have the breastplate of righteousness do you see it there in verse 14 putting on the breastplate of righteousness this refers to the imputed righteousness of christ i am a sinner in my nature but when i am saved jesus christ imputes to me his righteousness and i'm strong in the righteousness of christ not in my own strength remember we uh, are inadequate in ourselves but then third notice what it says Feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. It's an interesting word that's used here. The word for these uh, shoes that it's referring to refers to a Roman soldier's uh, hobnailed sandals, if you will. These were sandals that had hobnails through the bottom. They were not designed for running. They're designed for combat that you could put your foot in the ground and not be moved. You see what he's saying? To be able to stand firm. And so you're to be shod with the gospel of peace there's something about evangelism and something about being shod with the gospel of peace and going out that that adds strength to your life because you're on the offense now we're not always defensive we're on the offense next saturday afternoon 5 30 a bunch of us are going to meet here in the foyer of this auditorium And we're going to go into the streets, our Hispanic congregation, our Anglo congregation together as one body in Christ. And we're going to go out throughout the community all around this church. And we have Gospel of John's. Our plan is to pair up one Hispanic speaker with one English speaker. We'll see how that works out. So the goal is that when we come to a home, whatever language is spoken there, we will have a Gospel of John in English or in Spanish. And our goal is to place the Gospel of John in homes all around this church and in Invite people to church. It's a very simple task conceptually, but here's what you need to know it's spiritual warfare. Satan's gonna to to tell some of you everything in the world not to show up. But I'm challenging you to put on those gospel shoes and let's go out and on the offensive. So often we kind of get in a holy huddle in church buildings, but the gospel is meant to go out and to tell people good news. We're not trying to force anything down your throat. We are broken people trying to tell other broken people where we found healing in the name of Jesus Christ. And we're going to spread the gospel, putting on the gospel shoes of peace. You have to have the right shoes on to be ready for spiritual warfare. But not only that, you take up the shield of faith. Notice what it says. Pick up the shield of faith in verse 16 so that you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Let me describe the Roman shield for you. The shield of the Roman soldier, which he has in mind here, is not a small round shield, but it is an oblong shield about three feet long. It was made of two layers of wood somehow glued together. Covered with a layer of linen and then on top of that was another layer of animal hide and it was all held together by bands of iron and the idea is in combat the enemy would actually shoot flaming arrows these ideas of flaming arrows are not just something Hollywood invented in war 2000 years ago arrows set on fire and you flame and those shields were designed to deflect those sort of missiles that would come at you these flaming arrows let me tell you. Satan is a liar, and he's going to throw some darts at you. He's going to throw darts of doubt about your salvation. Some of you gave your life to Christ years ago. You are eternally secure in Christ. And for years, Satan has been throwing fiery darts at you, trying to convince you that you're not saved. Some of you... You have been forgiven of a sin that occurred years ago, and it is under the blood, and you stand in the righteousness of Christ today, but Satan keeps throwing fiery darts at you, and it leads to depression and anxiety and the, the feeling of defeat and worthlessness. And listen, you got to take up the shield of faith, and we're going to put out these flaming darts. He's coming after you, and he's going to throw fiery darts at you. Sometimes a fiery dart comes in the night, the and the form of another person that is an antagonist in your life. Sometimes it's someone you work with. You know they've got a new Incredibles movie coming out, and to show you something of my intellectual sophistication, I can't wait to see it. Honestly, right? I, but you, do you remember the first Incredibles movie? My favorite scene is when he throws his balls through about four walls. Did you see? Have any of you ever felt like that just once in life? Can I get an amen? Thank you. Yes, yes, we've all felt. Uh, I saw a couple of staff members raise their hand, which concerns me. But the. <laughs> The the point being, in all seriousness, there will be people with whom you work and Satan will work through them. They're trying to pull you down and drag you down to defeat. Get up that shield of faith. Put out those flaming darts. Not only do we have the shield of faith, but we have the helmet of salvation. Listen, above all, you must be converted. When you are born again, you have a new power. The Holy Spirit takes residence within you. Uh, They don't have a helmet law here in Kansas. In Missouri, we have a helmet law for motorcycles. I wear a full face helmet when I ride and wearing a a helmet helps prevent traumatic brain injury, TBI. We're all very sensitive to TBI's right now, traumatic brain injury. Listen carefully. The helmet of salvation will protect you from a TSI, a traumatic spiritual injury. It is the helmet of salvation, and you need Jesus Christ to save you, and put on that helmet, and uh, the helmet of salvation protects your head, and uh, the shield of faith protects your heart, and we need every piece of the armor of God. And that leads to the sword of the Spirit. Do you notice what it says? Verse 16 and or 15. Put, having girded your loins with truth, put on the breastplate of righteousness, shod your feet with the gospel of preparation to peace, taking up the shield of faith. Verse 17. The helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. If we're going to use the Word of God in our life, we've got to make sure our sword is sharp. That means reading and memorizing Scripture. And if we don't stay in the Bible, our sword becomes dull. Remember, Jesus was tempted by Satan. And every time Satan tempted Jesus, Jesus responded with Scripture. It is the sword of the Spirit. Man, you've got to have some Scripture down inside of you to fight those spiritual warfare. The the word for sword here is a word that refers to the short sword. And it implies close personal encounter. And the devil is going to come at you very closely and intimately and personally. It's this sort of warfare that's being described here is not like strategic air command where bombers fly in from thousands of feet. No, it is up close and it's personal and it's intimate. And you've got to have the sword of the spirit. One of the reasons that I want to encourage you to bring your children to children's programs at this church is we're going to try to sharpen their sword and teach them the Bible. Bible and teach them how to hide God's word in their hearts, so they can fight spiritual warfare and come out victoriously. You got to put on the armor of God. Honestly, you got to be dressed up for battle. Uh, We talk a lot about how people should dress and shouldn't dress and all those sort of things. Here's what I know. If you're going to be dressed up as a Christian, you need to put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. And you need to get the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. You need to shod your feet with the gospel of preparation of peace. And you need to take up the sword of the Spirit. And then you are ready for the fight of your life. But there's one more weapon we have. And Paul talks about it. You have to pray at all times. Notice how he finishes this after he talks about the armor of God. Notice what he says in verse 18. With all prayer, all petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Be on the alert with all perseverance. Do you notice the word all there? Over and over again, we're to have all prayer, all petitions at all times with all perseverance. Good soldiers don't fall asleep. They stay alert. We're praying at all times. John Stott said this, most Christians pray sometimes with some prayers, with some degree of perseverance, and for some of God's people. You have to pray at all times. Listen, Wichita will not be won to Christ by a church that does not pray. Do you know what you call a church that does not pray? You call it closed. That's what you call it. You have to stay on your knees in prayer. And do you see what Paul is? By the way, when Paul writes this, he's chained to a Roman soldier. And in that context, he says in verse 19, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given me in the opening of my mouth to make known the boldness of the mystery of the gospel. Hey, I want to talk to you about praying for your preacher for a second. I have heard more complaints in my life from Baptists about sermons. I mean, my word, the complaints I've heard about sermons. Some of you say, yeah, you wait till the service is over. I got some more for you. Well, uh, we complain. Let me ask you, how many of you have prayed for the preacher? Paul said, pray that he'd have all boldness. How many of you prayed for preachers? I have a list of pastors that I pray for. How many of you have prayed for me? How many of you have prayed for the staff here at the church? You want your church to grow. You want the staff to be a hot and on fire for Christ. How many, you have to pray at all times. How many of you prayed for your family? My daughter graduated from high school a couple weeks ago. Then she wrecked a car. Anyway, but we, uh, I'm going to tell you what, if you see me on Lake of the Ozarks in a speedboat pulling Lisa on a pair of skis, you stop and say, praise God, his kids are all out of the house. Amen. uh, But uh, my daughter's graduation and she's, I'm so proud of her. She's such a good girl and I love her so much and she's got so much potential in life but as she walked across that stage and we hooted and hollered for her, all I could think of was how many times did I miss to pray with her as she was growing up how many opportunities as her daddy did I miss to pray and to lead in devotion and to read the bible with that young woman walking across the stage mamas and daddies you got to pray the devil wants your children you have to pray and I'm pleading with some mothers and fathers to start a family altar. You're not going to win spiritual warfare except on your knees. Now, men, some of you men I've talked to, you're brave guys. And if a bad person broke into your house tonight to do something harmful to your family, you would lay down your life for your family. I've talked to you, and I believe you would do it. And I think you're absolutely sincere. I'm asking you to do something equally courageous. I'm asking you to start a prayer time in your home where you pray with your family, where you read the Bible, and you're going to feel awkward, you're going to feel uncomfortable. You know why? Because you're in spiritual warfare. And guess what? The last thing Satan wants your family to do is pray together. But I'm asking some men to take the wife by the hand and take the kids and say, we're going to pray. You talk about spiritual warfare, you wait until you start a family devotion time in your house. Let me tell you, you're in spiritual warfare. My goodness, the kids will kick each other. They'll yell at each other. The wife will say, I don't feel, the husband will say, I don't feel like it. Friends will show up, and you'll gripe at each other. We are going to read the Bible. (laughs) But you're in warfare. It's war you got to plan for the fight of your life. And for some of you, a war has been going on for years. I'm going to ask Miss Lisa to come, Brother Mark to come. Some of you, a war has been going on around your life. A battle has been swirling for years. And you didn't think it was a big deal. But the fact is, it is darker and more sinister than you ever imagined. Your soul and eternity is at stake. And there is a war and a fight for your life. And we talked about putting on the helmet of salvation. That's where you're at today. You need to let Jesus Christ be the Lord of your life. You need to receive Christ. And I'm going to invite you in just a moment to come forward and take me by the hand. And we can pray. And Brother Ryan's here. Brother Andy's here. Lisa and and Nikki are here if you're a lady. And uh, we can pray with you and explain to you how you can know that you're, uh, you're saved. And you can have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you're here and you talk about reaching this, this. This city needs Jesus. There is a spiritual warfare over Wichita. We need you to join with us to reach this city for Christ. That, this city, that Wichita, 300,000 people in Wichita, 600,000 in the metro area, every one of them need to hear the gospel. And we need you to join with us to reach this city for Christ. And you've been sitting on the sideline too long. Man, we're in a fight. This is spiritual warfare. And you need to get in the fight today. And part of that for some of you is uniting with this church to reach this community for Christ. Some of you have been saved. You've trusted Christ, but you've never been obedient to baptism, just like Abby was this morning. That's the first step of obedience for a Christian. And some of you've been saved for years, but you've never been obedient to baptism in the way the Bible says. You need to come forward today and make your public profession be obedient to Christ in baptism. I'm gonna pray, and after I pray, if you have a decision, you come. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I'm praying that you'll draw people to yourself. I pray that men and women and boys and girls will be saved. And I pray that you'll change hearts. And I pray, dear God, you would give us the victory in this warfare that we fight every day. In Jesus' name. Amen. Stand to your feet, while we sing, on the first verse, you come. Good morning, everyone. It's all sweet. Mr. Allen, get this that's all right. We have a we have a visitor in the baptistry, folks. And Pastor Allen's giving it out. All right. Okay. Come on over here, sweetie. Everyone, this is Abby Katz. Abby, I'll have you sit down and put your feet underneath that bar over there. Okay. Abby has given her heart to Jesus Christ, and my wife Lisa has Abby's testimony, which she has written. So, Lisa, would you read Abby's testimony for us? Jesus. But when I was 10, I prayed with my Sunday school teacher, Miss Lois, also to give my heart to Jesus. It was then that I decided I needed to get baptized. Jesus loves me, this I know, for my heart tells me so, so I love Jesus. This I know, my heart and my soul tell me, love tells him. Jesus loves me, yes, I know, I love Jesus with all my heart and soul. Amen. Abby, I want to ask you a question. Have you received Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Yes. On your testimony of Jesus is Lord, I baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Amen. Stand up sweetly, let everyone see you. At the end of the service today, Abby's going to be at the front. And we're going to present her to the church. Would everyone promise to come by and give her some love at the end of the service? And all the deacons are going to give you a dollar today, sweetie. Okay? (laughs) There you go. Lord bless you.